This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Denise Dupra, a general internist involved in primary care at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and an associate director of education for the Center for Individualized Medicine in Rochester. Over the next several weeks, we're going to devote a mini-series of Mayo Clinic Talks to the incredible field of genes in your health. We'll discuss concepts in genetics that are essential to providing the best care of your patients and how you can apply this information to individualize and optimize patient care in your own practice. Today, we're joined by Dr. Victor Ortega, a Mayo Clinic consultant in the Division of Pulmonary Medicine, Department of Internal Medicine, who has a joint appointment in Epidemiology, Department of Quantitative Health Sciences and we'll be discussing respiratory disease and health disparities. Dr. Ortega also serves as an associate director of the Center for Individualized Medicine in Arizona. His research focuses on how variants in DNA throughout the human genome make people with asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease at risk for more severe disease or poor responses to asthma and COP drugs. In addition, he's going to talk about issues with regard to differences in genetic makeup that are associated with different ethnicities and other issues related to healthcare disparities. Dr. Ortega kindly provided me with the one-page bio, and actually we talked about his accolades and all the things he's done both nationally and internationally related to this topic. We could spend all day just talking about all of the things he's accomplished. So with that, Victor, I'd like to thank you for coming today and thank you for joining us. So welcome. Thanks, Denise. Great to be here. So when we think about inviting people to podcasts, knowing the burden of COPD and asthma in this country, this was a natural topic to bring. And and one of the things we're going to talk about these disorders, and we're definitely going to get to the issue of healthcare disparities, because this is one of the conditions, and I know you've been very involved with COVID nationally, but where COVID really brought to the forefront how it disproportionately affected people in different socioeconomic classes and people of different race, color, and backgrounds. So what can you tell us about genetic differences that really impact COPD? and or asthma, because that's something new to me, and I suspect to many of our listeners. Yes, well, I think what we're traditionally taught in medical school is mostly Mendelian genetics. So we're taught about individual genes that have very rare variants or low-frequency variants that have strong effects in a particular gene like the cystic fibrosis gene, where if you inherit two copies, you get a disease, and it's we have a name for it, cystic fibrosis. And you know, and and it's a very severe disease. It, it could be a very progressive, debilitating disease. When we think about more common diseases like asthma, or COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or even the trait that we all have in common, we all have lungs that have lung function and lung structure. Our lungs have certain structures. You know, when we think about those things, those things are actually determined by probably over, you know, a thousand genes, way more, you know, across the genome. Lung function is determined by over a thousand genes. Chronic obstructive pulmonary disease as a result of tobacco smoke exposure is probably a subgroup of those genes. And those, you know, and, and to really understand and discover all the genes, we have to do large studies of tens to hundreds of thousands of people to find these genes. Asthma has hundreds of genes that we've found so far that can cause asthma. And once again, it's a it's a it's a common disease. 
people express it differently, different types of severity. Some people have allergic asthma, others non-allergic or non-T2 or T2 asthma. There's different types. And, you know, these are all determined also by a different set of genes. So, you know, you know that, that really is not necessarily what a lot of us were traditionally taught in medical genetics in school, but really the state of the art of where we're getting to. And, and these large genes actually can be put together into these genetic risk scores or polygenic risk scores that can be as large as hundreds of thousands of variants across the genome that can be used to actually predict risk for having COPD. Another good example outside of lungs is having coronary artery disease. Like there's actually a, um, a genetic risk score where if you're the upper quantile or decile of this particular genetic risk score for coronary disease, you have the same risk of disease as somebody who has a Mendelian variant. So, I mean, very strong effect sizes. So I think we're as a community, we still have to, you know, take care of and diagnose people with rare diseases, but we're getting into a, to a point where we're starting to understand the polygenic nature of diseases that are more common. And really, it's not just about prediction, but if you can understand why a disease happens, you may be able to do something. For example, one of the top genes for asthma was actually a gene called TSLP, TSLP, and that actually is a, the target for one of the drugs out in the market right now, Tezapelumab or Tespire is the commercial name. And that actually was, before it was a drug, it was actually a gene that came from one of the earlier genome stu genetic studies or whole genome studies of asthma. So, you know, you can, you know, so there's a lot of applications to this. And honestly, it's a, it's a rapidly evolving field. You know, we talked about polygenetic risk scores when we had Dr. Kulo talk with us. I think actually it's been two years now. So some of our audience may be familiar with that. This makes sense. I mean, I think we all have patients say, well, you know, my grandpa smoked or George Burns smoked cigars till he was 102 and he never got lung cancer and he never got COPD. So, you know, within our life experiences or our patients' life experiences, they all know somebody who tobacco didn't adversely affect. Now, that doesn't mean we should tell people to go ahead and smoke. I think we all know that. But how do we start to, as practitioners and as clinicians, how do we start to think about this? You know, I'm sitting in the office. I'm still going to tell my patient, you know, to eat right and not smoke and, and drink with moderation. But for some of these lung conditions... I mean, we know that some of these Mendelian or sort of dominant and non-dominant diseases like screening for cancer, are we at a point now where we start to think about screening with genetic testing for some of these conditions? Yeah, I think there's a few limits before these tests can go prime time. Number one, even the largest study of a trait like lung function, you know, you're still only explaining 15 to 20 percent of the heritability of it. So Genes by themselves or DNA code by itself really only explains a small proportion of the heritability of asthma or COPD or lung function. There's still a very large proportion that's unexplained. That unexplained proportion probably has several factors, probably environmental factors that are not accounted for because it's not really just our genes. It's really how the environment interacts with our genes that influences risk. For example, viral infections as a child you know, allergic disease, you know, different kinds of pollution. You know, there's a lot of literature on inner city children and being close to roads and being exposed to different pollutants and increased risk for asthma. And we also see that in general, the, actually the frequency of asthma in the world is actually going up, up, up every year around the world. And that's not the behavior of a genetic disease. The frequency doesn't always go up. It stays steady. And what that suggests is there's environmental exposure. So 
It's not as simple as having a, a genetic risk score in many diseases. I mean, there are some examples where you might be able to really apply a genetic risk score. But I think the question is, have we done enough studies and large enough and diverse enough populations to really be able to apply them across people? The answer largely is no, because mo about, you know, if you look at the genetic study participants, you know, the vast majority are European white descent, about two to 3% are minorities. Two things. Number one, if you try to apply a risk score developed in one population from a distinct ancestral background on other populations, if you take like a study developed in whites to predict cancer and you use it in another group that's non-white, like African-Americans or Hispanics, you may actually get false predictions. Actually, the genetic risk score for lung function is actually higher in African-Americans. is some research that we did in the spiromics cohort from NIH but there wasn't really a lung function, as clear of a lung function association, even though the risk scores were higher. And it was just because of the different ancestries, which influence how the variants are expressed or their frequency in the human population. It's, it's complex genetic epidemiology, but essentially genetic risk scores, you know, have to have the most diverse populations to be the best genetic risk scores. And our more recent paper in Nature Genetics with our UK Biobank collaborators we definitely showed that if you use multiple groups from different ancestral backgrounds, what we label as race ethnic groups, those labels have no biologic relevance. But when we use those labels, when we bring these people together and do these diverse studies, we actually make better genetic risk scores or polygenic risk scores. So that in principle means we have to do a better job of being more inclusive to develop better scores. And also the availability of high throughput whole genome genotyping, whole genomes on people isn't mainstay of practice yet. I mean, we go in for our heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, and we're not necessarily getting the genome at the same time yet. I think there'll come a point where this will probably be the place to do this, but we're not there. Most places that are doing it, are, and we hope to try to strategize a bit on how to do it, you know, within the context of Mayo Clinic and the Center of Individualized Medicine, but a lot of this is still development. We're still developing these. They're still being tested, you know, we're still trying to understand how they can be clinically applied, to be honest with you. It seems like from a practical standpoint, you know, as an internist, I always think about step care, whether it's COPD or asthma, there are guidelines. And I know you're a member of the American Thoracic Society that also publishes guidelines about how does a person seeing patients, you know, first line of care, say you start out with a, a rescue inhaler, and then you add the the inhaled corticosteroid and you stepwise looking for control, whether it's COPD or asthma. It would seem to me that there is that group, though, as I walk up the stairway and intensify care, that when I can't figure out how to best control something, that that group might be somebody who maybe would benefit from some genomic tests. Is that where we're at? I mean, are we moving in that direction with regards to looking at genomics of care for these individuals? Yeah, yeah. so you're trans I think what you're transitioning to now is a discussion of what we've talked about up until this point in our conversation is more disease susceptibility or risk and even disease severity. But what we really haven't talked about yet is response to drug or the genetics of drug response. So you talk about pharmacogenetics. And that's an area that I've done a considerable amount of research in. The thing about pharmacogenetic studies is you don't need the very large sample sizes to find genes because the effect sizes are strong. You give a drug and you manipulate a biologic system or molecular pathway and you have a change in phenotype. 
So the effect sizes are stronger than getting a complex disease over the course of a lifetime. So pharmacogenetics is that the studies that we design are stronger, have stronger effect size. You know, the variants that we're trying to find with pharmacogenetic studies have stronger effect sizes, so are more easily identifiable. And yeah, there's been a large number of genes that myself and other groups have found that influence response to different asthma drugs. As we speak, we're trying to do larger and larger studies, combining cohorts from clinical trials to do this. The thing about pharmacogenetic studies is even though we're trying to find variants with stronger effect sizes, like, you know, even though we're trying to find those, you still have to have the population to do the genetic studies. It's not as simple as the electronic health record. I mean, there's ways you could do it with the electronic health record, but the ideal situation is a clinical trial, somebody given was drug, somebody was given drug, somebody was given placebo, or somebody was crossed over to another drug, or somebody was exposed to drug and you met and you looked at the pharmacodynamics of the drug. You have those phenotypes, those physical characteristics or phenotypes that you've measured in a controlled setting, and then those patients provided DNA before the study or after the study. Then you can look at genes and find genes, scan the genome to find novel genes, to find variants that may influence drug response. But those also are complex and probably determined by multiple genes. And the drugs we use to treat diseases like asthma and COPD are treating a disease that's heterogeneous. For example, there's a subgroup of COPD patients who have high blood eosinophils and probably have an allergic phenotype. Those are actually a subgroup that actually are very responsive to biologic drugs, but not all COPD is responsive to biologic drugs. So the picture is a bit blurred because of the heterogeneity of the diseases we treat. For example, not all asthma is allergic. So when we're trying to look at a drug like inhaled steroids, and there's a lot of good studies on inhaled steroid pharmacogenetics that I've published and others have published, there's a lot of genes, but there is a subgroup of people who may better respond to other therapies for non-allergic asthma. But I do agree that there's a role for pharmacogenetics in, in asthma and where we have steps for therapy like you described. It's like a patient is not controlled on low-dose inhaled steroids, and then you want to know what to step them up next to. Do you just go up to a medium-dose inhaled steroid, or do you add a long-acting beta agonist, or do you add a long-acting muscarinic antagonist like Spiriva or Teotropium? The guidelines actually don't tell you what to go to. They just say go up to something. And I do believe, like you and others do, and this is our major line of research, is there's probably certain genetic scores or genetic architecture for response to the different classes of drugs. We just need more studies. And, and, you know, and we've done crossover studies primarily in, Af in African descent minorities. It was a paper we published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2019. I did the genetic analysis along with Mike Wexler, National Jewish, and and Stan Seffler at the University of Colorado and Elliott Israel at Harvard. And we, we actually did a, a forearm crossover clinical trial of, of minorities with at least one black grandparent and looked at all the different step-up options. And we actually crossed them over to all the four different options over the course of a crossover clinical trial. Two years later, we published the, the whole genome scanning and the discovery of new genes in this population in the Lancet Child Adolescent Health Journal. And we actually found for the first time in minorities in minority children and adults and adolescents, for the first time, we actually found genes that influence response to long-acting beta agonists and inhaled corticosteroids um, by doing a method called admixture mapping. I won't go into the details, but it, it's actually a method that allows you to find genes by looking in the context of ancestral background to actually home in on genes throughout the genome. 
And we would have never found these genes if we hadn't looked in minorities. If we had just continued to look at European whites, we would have never found these novel genes, which I think are going, are going to make larger genetic risk scores or profiles, maybe profiles, a better word, genetic profiles that maybe one day will guide how we step up our therapies and asthma patients. Well, and that's a natural segue into the other topic that I think is so critical we talk about, and that's respiratory disease and health disparities. You know, I know one of the big criticisms of the genomic literature in general is just what you said, which is most of it is based on European whites. And let's face it, the face of the United States or many countries you go to is not European white anymore. So I'd like you to talk about that, uh, what research you've done, where you see that research going, because as you just used as an example, what you have learned from diversifying the population where you've done the genetic studies or genomic studies, I know much is yet to be done, but I'd like your comments on that, because I think that's so critical for everyone to understand where we're falling short. Yeah, and I think the reason why, I mean, we all see that like Puerto Ricans and African-Americans have the worst asthma, you know, in terms of their morbidity and mortality, while European whites have less and Mexican-Americans actually have even less. We lump Mexican and Puerto Ricans together, even though ancestral backgrounds are actually quite different. Puerto Ricans have substantially higher background African ancestry, and Mexican-Americans actually have substantially higher Native American ancestry. So, so you know, there's, there's differences. And, and the differences in ancestry really... What they really do is they cause the variants throughout the genome to have different frequencies. If we look at our gene code, every 100 nucleotides is going to be some kind of a variant we're going to carry throughout our whole genome. So, you know, we're all about 1% different <laughs> or less. But the frequency of all those variants across our whole genome actually vary depending on where your chromosomal segment came from. Did it come from an African ancestry, Native American ancestry, a European ancestry? You know, it varies. So there's some variants that actually are highly frequent in European whites, but maybe actually be rare in African-Americans. So that's why genetic risk scores from one group may not work in another. Could that relate to health disparities? You know, it is very much possible. And, and one of the evidences for that is, is we actually have found studies where we actually looked at African ancestry over time in clinical trial participants that were European white, Hispanic, and and African-Americans, and we actually found that African ancestry, higher African ancestry associated with more frequent exacerbations. The most important caveat to what I just said is, is that even though we generate ancestral estimates using whole genome data, like when you, I don't know if you've done 23andMe or Ancestry.com, you know, they use whole genome data to estimate those. Even though they come from genetics, ancestry strongly tracks with history, geographical history, cultural background, environmental factors, even experiences of racism, things that actually change our epigenome or change how we express genes from generation to generation. You know, so we have to understand that too. But, but when we do studies in minority groups and we actually look, we do find genes that we would never have found unless we looked that are not necessarily factors that drive asthma or COPD in European whites but do so very much so in African-Americans or Puerto Ricans, but never would have found them unless we looked. And the truth of the matter is there's a lot of genes and their contribution to disease might vary depending on your ancestral background. It's not only the genetic code, but it's also how the environment interacts with the genetic code, which makes the whole question even more complicated. Lung function is an example of this. It's a very good example of this, actually. It's a topic that we discussed for over three years when we released our ATS statement on race 
in the interpretation of lung function. It's always been postulated, not always, but since the Civil War or even before the Civil War, that that blacks or self-reported blacks have a lower lung function. You know, and that's carried on to predictive equations we use for lung function today, like the Hankinson equation that came from NHANES data. You know, we've had these assumptions that there's lower lung function in self-reported blacks compared to European whites. And if you look at African ancestry, actually for every percent African ancestry uh, an individual has, you can see lower lung function. But I think we have to, you know, once again, race is not a biologic entity at all. It's a social construct. First of all, we have to get away from doing that and that these are old assumptions that we have to get away from. And I think there's been several papers that have come out to show that using race-based equations do a very bad job of predicting outcomes in COPD patients and minorities. It's, it does a really crappy job. There's some really good research coming out of University of California, San Francisco, and, and a young investigator that I mentor has done a lot of good work in this field showing that we do a better job of predicting outcomes in COPD if we actually use equations that are race neutral. And I think that's very important. I think we have to acknowledge that we make that description of differences, but what we don't acknowledge is there's a history behind that. There's environmental, socioeconomic, nutritional issues that probably are just the product of the sad history that we have to acknowledge and face and take responsibility for instead of making sweeping conclusions that are derived from as far back as the Civil War. So, you know, that that's important. Well, I think for many of us, at some point, we're told or led to believe that you get a set of genes and that's what you have and they're immutable. And mm -hmm. as I've had my own journey into my role as Associate Director of Education, the biggest learning point for me is that's not true. And it's exactly what you said. All of my life experiences, where I grew up, who I grew up with, all of these things have had an impact that we're just starting to learn the complexity of the interactions between the genes I inherited from my mom and dad, my life experiences, what I've eaten, you know, what I've drank, where I've been, and these things have all impacted my phenotype is. I mean, I can say that my mom and dad were overweight, so I'm overweight, but there are other things that have impacted that and my predisposition to health problems. It's not as simple as I got a set of genes from each parent, therefore is predetermined exactly who I am and what I'm going to become and what I'm going to be subject to. And so I'm not sure everybody understands that still, that we're not Mendelian inheritance anymore. That is far more complex. I'm not going to be wrinkled or smooth pea when I grow up. Yeah, no, and even our complex features like lung function that are determined by multiple genes are strongly influenced by environmental factors and how they interact, especially nutrition. There's actually good papers out on nutrition and lung function. I mean, it's, it's one among many things. So I think we're moving into an era where we're understanding that we have to get away from using race as a political construct and, and with no basis in biology and moving forward. And in science and in genomic medicine, the best answer is, is really to just make sure that when we do genetic studies, that the populations are diverse, that they're not 98% you know, European white and 3% minorities. That's just representative of the, of the majority, really. And it's not representative of the diverse ancestries that we all share. I mean, we all share these. It's a, it's a continuum of ancestries that we all share, you know, and everyone has a different proportion of that. And that's it's what makes the human population great. You know, it's our diversity. We're getting to the end of the time we have allotted, and this has just been fascinating. It's been eye-opening to think about where we're at, what the future looks like. And in closing, I would ask, are there 
two or three take-home messages that you would like to leave our audience with related to asthma, COPD, diversity, healthcare disparities, pharmacogenomic genetics related to pharmacotherapy? What would you like our audience to know? What I would like our audience to know is that, you know, obviously this is an evolving field and patients are going to ask more and more about this as they get back to our 23andMe reports, you know, they get those back. But I will tell you that the continuum of ancestry, and I think, is an important thing because when you see patients who have traditional European white diseases like cystic fibrosis, the field has actually moved into an era now where we're finding these diseases in, in, in everybody. So, you know, please, if, if you see a patient who has features of cystic fibrosis but is not a European white, you should definitely be considering testing for cystic fibrosis. Along the lines of what we talked about earlier about ancestry and allele frequencies, that actually impacts strongly rare variants that cause Mendelian diseases like cystic fibrosis. And actually, these patients with African-Americans and Hispanics with cystic fibrosis actually do very bad. They actually do compared to their white counterparts, and it's because one of the reasons why is their diagnosis is delayed because people don't think to order genetic testing. Once again, I think we have to get away from splitting people into these distinct groups. If somebody comes in with bronchiectasis and they have family members of bronchiectasis, whether they're white or not, you should be tested. And you should order the right genetic test. And this is a topic for another day, Denise, but um, a genotyping panel for CFTR of 109 variants was developed from European white children. Those variants don't necessarily pop up in older patients, and they usually are not diagnostic in African-Americans or Hispanics. So I think we're getting into an era where we have to, even the genetic test that we use today, with the principles we've learned up until now, we have to understand that we have to consider all people when we look at genetic diseases at this point. The last thing is encourage your patients in terms of participation in studies and as we develop this field, it's an ever-evolving field, and it really does take a, more than a village. <laughs> it takes countries to, to develop these things, and the field is rapidly evolving. But you know, if you have any questions or how can we be more involved, there are, definitely, there are different programs within the SIM, Center of Individualized Medicine, like the Tapestry Program. There'll be a Tapestry 2.0 program that's whole genomes across 100,000 people in the Mayo Clinic system. There's also the PROUD program or the Program of Rare and Undiagnosed Diseases where we're evaluating patients, you know, for rare conditions and really using the appropriate genetic tests, irrespective of eth ethnicity or race, to really get the best diagnosis for all of our patients who may come in with rare diseases. And hopefully we'll apply those approaches, genomic approaches to more common diseases with genetic risk scores at some point. But it really takes all of us working together and, and not shying away from the bold future that is before us. I want to thank you. Today, we've been talking about respiratory disease and health disparities with Dr. Victor Ortega. Thank you for your time. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Please also check out our sister podcast, The Pursuit of Precision, the science advancing individualized medicine, which features in-depth conversations with researchers and physicians on discoveries and emerging science in precision medicine. Topics include population genomics, the exposome, digital health, the exposome, and individualized vaccines for cancer. See, your genes really matter. Thank you all. Have a great day. <laughs>